Welcome to Nigerian American. My name is LD, and this is my podcast. 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 Um, but I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then... I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. You know, if, 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 if all you're doing is casting stones, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. That's easy to do. This episode is about cancel culture. Wikipedia defines the phrase cancel culture as a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online, on social media, or in person. The idea of canceling someone was popularized among young people online, particularly on Black Twitter around the year 2014. Canceling was used to refer to what some have described as a cultural boycott. Boycotting is not a new concept. It is the act of withdrawing from commercial or social relations with a brand, an organization, or an individual as a punishment or in protest for a questionable action or a controversial event. The idea here is that the economic loss that results from a boycott is likely to persuade the person or organization to alter the practice or policy that people are protesting against. The term boycott actually comes from a man by the same name. The history behind it is that a man by the name Charles Boycott, who was a land manager for wealthy Englishmen in Ireland, rejected a request by the Irish tenants of his landowner to reduce their rents by 25%. They wanted a reduction due to a bad harvest that made the rents unaffordable, but Mr. Boycott only offered them a 10% reduction. This led to local Irishmen shunning Boycott and anyone associated with him. They refused to take over any empty properties, and local businesses will not sell anything to Boycott and his family, including food. It eventually forced Mr. Boycott out of town and even out of the country to the United States. However, his reputation followed him, and businesses that worked with him were threatened with a boycott. The word boycott became an official word in the English dictionary in 1888. In 1955, Rosa Parks, a black woman, refused to give up her seat at the front of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, for a white man. At the time, racial segregation Jim Crow laws in the South forced black people to ride in the back of buses while front seats were reserved for white people. Black leaders called for a boycott of all city buses shortly after, and the fact that 75% of bus riders were black caused a major loss in revenue and nearly bankrupted the bus company. 
The boycott lasted 381 days until the Supreme Court ruled that segregation on any form of transportation was against the law. This was the civil rights movement in America's first successful boycott. In 1986, the United States Congress enacted the Anti-Apartheid Act, which banned South African imports and airlines from the U.S. and prohibited foreign aid being sent to the country. As a result, many international companies left South Africa, causing major revenue and job losses. Four years later, the then leader of South Africa, Frederick de Klerk, lifted the government's ban on Nelson Mandela's party and freed all political prisoners. Shortly after, de Klerk also announced that South Africa would hold free and open elections for everyone, both white and black, ending the old racist system of apartheid. The U.S. sanctions were lifted shortly after Nelson Mandela won the elections. The U.S. boycott, amidst other international sanctions and pressures, had a direct influence on the fall of apartheid. I share this bit of history to establish the fact that boycotts have been around for quite a while and when used can be a very effective mechanism for change. I'd like to point something out about the nature of boycotts. Boycotts are usually intended to protest a practice or policy and as a means to right a wrong or fix a problem. Usually, when the boycotted individual, organization, or brand fulfills the demands of the protesters, the boycott ends. Now, let's examine the idea of canceling. Many people think of canceling or cancel culture to refer to boycotts. And while this may have been the intended use of the word by Black Twitter some years back, it has taken a very different form. Here's the major difference. Boycotting implies withdrawal, the act of removing oneself from associating with a brand, an organization, an individual, or even a country. The purpose of which is to express displeasure, and the general intention is to get the targeted party to end a particular practice or policy. Cancel culture, on the other hand, seeks to punish, period. It doesn't offer an actual way out for the targeted party. Though apologies and conciliatory actions may be demanded, they're usually not accepted. And oftentimes the punishment is severe and the damage done to the targeted party is irreparable. Boycotts target with the expectation of changed behavior, whereas cancel culture targets simply to punish. Early on, the cancel culture phenomenon appeared to serve as an aid for the marginalized. It presented as a way to give a voice to the voiceless. It started as a grassroots social media empowerment movement that staged online protests that were intended to call out public figures and institutions that transgressed the rights of disenfranchised groups. For example, the Me Too movement that gained momentum in 2017 encouraged using the Me Too phrase as a hashtag to help reveal the extent of problems with sexual harassment and assault by showing how many people have experienced these events themselves. In October 2017, Harvey Weinstein was dismissed from his company and expelled from the Academy of Motion Picture of Arts and Sciences following sexual abuse allegations dating back to the late 1970s. More than 80 women made allegations against him. Harvey was arrested and charged with rape in New York in May of 2018 and was sentenced in February of 2020 to 23 years in prison. In 2018, Bill Cosby was also convicted of aggravated indecent assault and imprisoned 
until the conviction was vacated in June 2021 by the Supreme Court due to some legal technicality. The success of social media campaigns like the Me Too movement encouraged many groups to begin to actively leverage social media to call out public figures and institutions. It also demonstrated the power of social media to enable social justice activism and to encourage good corporate behavior from what most people would consider as the establishment. The problem, however, is that ideological differences make social justice subjective. When it comes to hot and heavily politicized topics in the United States, like abortion, gay rights, gun control, immigration, and things like that, right? Depending on which of the sides you support, social justice could mean different things. For example, liberals in the U.S. tend to favor more government intervention in order to promote social and economic equality. Liberals support and endorse minimum wage laws, arguing that without government intervention, businesses will take advantage of employees and economic inequality will increase. On the other hand, liberals tend to oppose government intervention into areas of private life, such as laws restricting contraception or same-sex marriage. Conservatives in the U.S. tend to oppose government intervention in order to promote social and economic equality, arguing that the free market will reward individuals according to their talent and hard work. Conservatives also oppose government restrictions on individual liberties protected in the Bill of Rights, such as the right to bear arms. On the other hand, conservatives tend to favor government intervention to promote traditional morality, such as outlawing abortion and marijuana. Then there's the libertarians, who oppose all government intervention in economic and social policy. They tend to believe government exists to protect private property and little else. They also don't believe in government regulating morality or the free market. Because of the different beliefs and opinions, social justice and acceptable corporate behavior are often subjective. We're beginning to experience more social media vigilantism that support ideologically driven establishments and institutions rather than it being a general accountability mechanism for the voiceless. Nowadays, if you do something that goes against my beliefs, I now have the power to get my people to attack and potentially cancel you. We aren't talking boycotts any longer, but all-out cancellations, where the goal is to silence or totally eliminate contrary ideologies or opinions. Institutions are now essentially fueling and enabling cancellations in order to either drown out opposing ideas or eliminate them altogether. If I lean liberal, I champion that cause. If I lean conservative, I champion that cause. And while championing a cause is one thing, realizing the power to quiet or drown the ideas of those you don't support is another. Being able to hunt down the champions of opposing ideologies and successfully canceling them is unprecedented. Now we have platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, and Facebook that enable and have actually become the engines for political and ideological repression. TV news media outlets like Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and others have chosen political sides and haven't reported the news without overwhelming bias in over a decade. Sadly, social media platforms like Twitter, Getter, Instagram, Clubhouse, MeWe, and others have also begun to express some support for political or religious ideologies, and they've even put policies in place that directly or indirectly enable such positions. Every single time I've had this discussion with friends 
The argument I get is that these are private companies and should be entitled to their terms and conditions. I do not disagree with that. However, I do believe that once a company that provides a public utility reaches a certain scale, they ought to operate under the same laws as other public utility companies. Though private, a company like T-Mobile cannot dictate what discussions I have on my cell phone. Neither can AT&T. Comcast should not be able to determine what websites I visit as long as my actions aren't deemed by law to be unlawful, harmful, obscene, hateful, threatening to the life of others, or inciting violence. My argument here is that while it is okay to operate as a private company, once your user base exceeds a certain threshold, especially now that social media has become the largest of all media platforms, you ought to be bound by the same laws as traditional utility companies. If AT&T, who is the largest telecoms company in America, decides for some odd reason to favor Islam over Christianity and all other religions and censors communications that do not align with Islamic values, it will be considered an infringement on the rights of those being censored to practice whatever religion they choose. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution states clearly that everyone in the United States has the right to practice his or her own religion or no religion at all. This makes it illegal for AT&T to favor a religion over another. Though AT&T is a private company, they do provide a public utility for communication in the United States and therefore must abide by the First Amendment. Most people don't consider political inclinations as being very similar to religions, but the truth is they're almost the same. Doctrines may differ, but they're rooted in similar belief systems and they're highly intertwined. When Twitter decided to kick Donald Trump off the platform in 2020, they cited that Trump had posted two tweets that violated their policy against the glorification of violence and that he could further inspire others to replicate violent acts like the one that took place at the U.S. Capitol. According to Twitter, one of the tweets he was banned for stated, and I quote, The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. End of quote. The second quote was that he would not go to Biden's swearing-in ceremony later that month. According to Twitter, his second tweet could be read by followers as an encouragement to commit violence during the inauguration. The second tweet reads, and I quote, To all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th, end of quote. Now, depending on who you ask, Twitter's actions could be considered as more than justified or could be considered as very harsh and politically motivated. Context is definitely important. And while the words alone may not appear to be threatening, ideological motivations and political inclinations play a big role in how one feels about Twitter's ban of Donald Trump. We'll be back after a quick break. We'll be right back. If you live in a democratic state or a country that has two or more major religions, or if ideological differences based on traditional belief systems determine political inclinations, you'll notice one or more of the following approaches, especially during elections. Persuasion, domination, or elimination. And you can see this playing out all over the world 
depending on how extreme the people choose to be. The least aggressive approach, and the one that a true democracy supports and encourages, is persuasion. In order to persuade people with different ideologies, you have to engage in discussions and dialogues. The legislative branch of government is tasked with having these discussions, presenting the various cases, analyzing scenarios, and making democratic decisions by voting. Discussions enable a better understanding of others' perspectives. This understanding is what leads us to the compromises we make in order to collaborate effectively. The key here is the engagement in discourse and debates on issues that we need to collectively decide upon. One thing to note is that we will never all agree on every topic. Democracy suggests that we try to understand all perspectives and then attempt to persuade one another to support our preferred outcomes. Democracy is founded upon the fact that we may disagree, and it provides a system to manage such disagreements. A system of democracy also suggests that when we have disagreements or if we ever reach an impasse, we may vote to gain consensus. Not only does democracy ask us to vote, it is also clearly agreed that whoever loses commits to supporting the outcome of the vote. You cannot effectively persuade people without engaging with and talking to them. Persuasion is a strategy that requires dialogue. Then there's domination. Domination in this case is any strategy that seeks to drown out contrary ideologies. This can be done through affecting policies that limit a group or ideology or by overpowering the voice of the opposition. This may be done through policy or domination of the media. For example, ads that run during elections are essentially attempting to get as much mindshare for the intended political candidate as possible over all other candidates. Buying up as much of the advertising slots available or even preventing other groups from being able to advertise altogether is a domination strategy. There isn't much dialogue going on here between the candidates. Groups are basically looking to gain dominance over each other in order to have their way. An example of domination is how white apartheid South Africa was able to control the black population through white minority rule. The black population in South Africa during the apartheid era was 70%. White was only 20% and Indian and others was 10%. Yet the laws were written in favor of white minority rule. Preventing the opposition from being heard or acknowledged is the ultimate goal here. Then there's the most dangerous, in my opinion, of the options. Elimination. Like the word suggests, individuals or groups are looking to totally get rid of one another. An extreme example is encouraging the use of violence to quiet opposing ideologies permanently. Religious or ethnic groups that choose this option may decide that in order for their ideas and beliefs to be triumphant, they must eliminate other ideologies, traditions, or beliefs. Religious and ethnic animosities have driven many conflicts around the world in recent times, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Syrian civil war, the Rwandan genocide, the Buddhist uprising of 1996, the 2010 Joss riots in Nigeria, the Nigerian civil war of 1966, and the more recent Boko Haram menace that Nigeria has been dealing with since 2002. Political rhetorics play a major role in fanning ideological and religious flames that sometimes lead followers down the path of elimination. A less extreme but equally radical example of elimination 
is the concept of a Twitter ban or a Facebook ban or an Instagram ban, especially when the targeted individual has not broken any laws. It has never been easier to get someone banned on a social media platform. Like I said, not necessarily because a law has been broken, but usually because an individual may have opposing views or ideologies. Many social media platforms in a bid to manage privacy and bullying have unintentionally created cancel engines that sometimes ban the individual or group from the platform altogether. Most social media platforms have functionality that allow you to, as a user, block or prevent other users from seeing or communicating with you. This functionality is critical for preventing bullying and predatory behavior, or even just a simple way to mute voices as a user that you do not wish to hear on the platform. Oftentimes, the blocked party will still be able to communicate with others on the platform. They just won't be able to see or communicate with you. However, when you block someone on an app like Clubhouse, it limits the way the blocked person can communicate with others as well. You're no longer preventing the person from communicating with you, but limiting their ability to communicate with others in the process. So you're not violating that individual's right to freely express themselves. Very slippery slope. Once you block someone on Clubhouse, they can't join or even see any room that you create. Not only that, they won't even be able to join rooms where you're speaking, which effectively blocks them from everyone else in that particular room. If you join a room that a blocked party is already in, and you're brought up to the stage, the blocked party will be kept off the stage for as long as you're up there. As a room moderator, you can block an active speaker and kick them out of the conversation even while they're still speaking. I see why someone may think this to be a good idea, and I do believe that Clubhouse's intentions are good. My opinion is that Clubhouse has unintentionally created a cancel engine like no other. On Clubhouse, you don't have to break the law to be blocked from being able to freely communicate. All you need is a few people who don't agree with you or people who don't like what you're saying to block you, and you'll effectively no longer be able to join any rooms that they're in or contribute to discussions that they're a part of. It's my understanding that if enough people block you or report you, you get warned and you could even be banned completely from the app all without committing a single crime. Again, I see how user feedback could have led to these features being introduced, but I also see how dangerous they are, especially when they're in the wrong hands. These Clubhouse features enable the domination that I described earlier in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. And in some cases, these features have led to the complete elimination of law-abiding citizens from the platform. Many people are clamoring for these functionalities to be introduced on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other platforms. But like I said earlier, these platforms, at least in my opinion, are public utility. And we must be careful about supporting ideological arguments or encouraging the cancellation of law-abiding citizens. Clubhouse has given us the ability to kick people out of discussions who we consider as being offensive. Offensive is the key word here. And whether you consider something that is being said offensive is relative. It could be a matter of your preferred ideologies or belief systems. 
It really just depends on the room that you're in. A Muslim, for example, may be offended by the caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad, a Christian by the dismissal of Jesus as the Son of God, or an atheist by the idea that God exists in the first place, or a liberal by the idea that free markets are better than food stamps, or a conservative by the idea that women should be allowed to terminate early pregnancies. I could go on and on. The point is, we live in a world where we cannot always all agree, and if we choose to block people with opposing beliefs and ideas, we end up in echo chambers. These echo chambers initially make us feel warm and fuzzy, and it, it gives us a sense of community because now we're surrounded mostly by people who believe what we believe and people who want to do what we want to do. But the reality is that echo chambers are very dangerous. Echo chambers isolate and they lead to extreme polarization, which often fuels misinformation and leads to dangerous levels of intolerance. Much of the tension that we're experiencing in global politics today is a direct result of domination and elimination mechanisms and the resulting echo chambers. When one group seeks to dominate or eliminate, other groups' opinions are not tolerated or even given a chance. There is no dialogue and therefore there's no opportunity for persuasion. The dominant group only gets to hear their own side of the story and it is repeated day in and day out. Often, these ideas are fed to them by others within the group, who knowingly or not demonize all other groups in the process. Echo chambers often encourage the spread of unchallenged falsehoods and could sometimes lead seemingly rational good people to do some really messed up stuff. The fact that many people agree on something doesn't mean that it's true or justified. Whether you're a U.S. Republican or a Democrat, the minute you get sucked into these echo chambers, you lose the opportunity to objectively participate in political debates. Because everything you read, hear, and think will be along the lines of your political party's narratives. How most Democrats view Republicans and vice versa today is less as political opponents, but more as enemies. The democratic system was designed for us to seek common ground on issues that affect everyone, regardless of political leanings. However, that is only possible if you get a chance to hear both arguments clearly. If everything you know and hear about the opposition party is what your own politicians are telling you, how can you ever get an objective view of the arguments that is being made by the opposition? Echo chambers are being encouraged by social media algorithms. Social media platforms, algorithms, seek to curate your feed by showing you what they think you'll like in order to keep you engaged for long enough to show you more ads. This is pretty much how the platforms work. This is how they make money. Social media platforms sell your behavioral data to whoever wants it. That's how to facilitate more accurately targeted marketing. So as a user... You only see suggestions of things that you have liked in the past or already agree with. Now, Mark Zuckerberg would argue that Facebook only suggests based on your choices as a user. But the algorithms also want you to remain on the platform for as long as possible. So the algorithms are trained not to show you things that could turn you off. 
In the process, you continue to validate whatever your current interests are, which further narrows your perspectives, leading you to believe whatever narratives are being fed to your group or people like you by its custodians. This is extremely dangerous. The unintended polarization results in groups seeing one another as enemies. It reinforces that us versus them mentality, those stereotypes, and leads social justice activists to believe they're doing the right thing when they attempt to cancel people with opposing views. I think it's important to see cancellations and cancel culture for what it really is. And to understand that once we decide on a mission to cancel someone or something, we've chosen the path of elimination. We're no longer seeking to persuade the person to see our view on things or to convince them. What we're seeking is the elimination of the person from social circles and in some cases the society at large. When someone breaks the law, should they be punished? Absolutely, no question. But when someone has a different perspective and they're not breaking the law, should they be punished? simply because we disagree with them? Should people be banned from social media just because they say things we don't agree with? Should social media platforms that, again, I consider to be public utility, be allowed to dictate what can be said or not on their platforms, especially when laws are not being broken? People are currently being banned from social media platforms because some users have made claims of not feeling safe or that they're being triggered by the perspectives of the banned users. Many of you listening to this right now may imagine that, you know, these bans are justified because they align with your current political leanings. But try to imagine a scenario where you are on the opposite side. It's easy to see people with different or opposing opinions as not deserving of an audience, a platform, or even a voice. But this mentality it's very dangerous. One of the biggest wins of the 21st century, the U.S. civil rights movement, was only possible because of America's First Amendment, which gives every American the freedom of speech. Free speech is the cornerstone of American democracy. Taking it away as a means to dominate opposing ideologies is dangerous, very dangerous. Now, imagine for a minute that Dr. Martin Luther King was unable to express his opinions, which were, by the way, highly unpopular at the time. In today's politically charged climate, some people actually believe that the government should restrict certain speech. People are actually clamoring for social media platforms to restrict certain ideas, opinions, and users. Imagine that Dr. Martin Luther King was somehow gagged when he began his campaigns in the 50s. The results of such gagging is what kept people like Nelson Mandela in prison for 27 years. He simply had an opinion that didn't align with the ruling white party's narratives and was not only gagged, but sentenced to life in prison. When you seek to cancel someone because of their opinions or ideas, you're no different from those who support the gagging of those they disagree with. The Nigerian government in June of 2021 banned the use of Twitter in the country because they believe that Twitter was enabling Nigerian youths to speak up against the government. 
The Nigerian Information Minister, Mr. Lai Mohammed, insisted that the suspension was a matter of national security. Nigeria's 1999 constitution guarantees freedoms of expression and the press. So why would the government, against the wishes of the people, decide to ban Twitter? It's simple. The government felt threatened by the possibility of a social media uprising like the Arab Spring. They took this action as a means for self-preservation. This is another example of what happens when the power of domination or elimination is in the wrong hands and why everyone should be fighting to ensure that no group or organization or government has the ability to gag opposition. I got to say, though, that Twitter was at least somewhat consistent with deleting the Nigerian president's tweet as they did the U.S. president's tweet a few months earlier. Both tweets were considered to be inciting violence, which goes against the policies and the law. I do, however, question their consistency as it applies to President Joe Biden and his threats against the Taliban. He could be considered as inciting violence as well, no? Look, all I'm trying to point out is the freedom of speech should not only protect the speech that people like, but the speech that people don't like as well. Twitter can't say it with their chest that they don't apply these policies with some bias because they absolutely do. The government in North Korea restricts all civil and political liberties for its citizens, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and even freedom of religion. All organized political opposition, independent media, civil society, and trade unions, they're all prohibited. This is what happens when we allow freedoms and human rights to be malleable. It's all fun and games until the group in power are looking to dominate or eliminate yours. We should all stand in defense of the right to freely express without the fear of persecution. I just wanted to give you guys something to think about in this episode. I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is that if history has taught us anything, it is that popular doesn't always mean right or accurate. And because of this understanding, we must be careful about the policies that we support and the cancellations that we enable or champion. Wokeness is, is fashionable today and social media is becoming weaponized. But canceling people, especially people who haven't broken the law, is not social activism. It is social vigilantism. Social change is most effectively achieved through persuasive dialogue between reasonable groups. I mean, feel free to boycott anyone you wish, whoever you wish, but recognize that taking action to support cancel culture is extreme behavior. In conclusion, ideological repression it's a huge threat to the freedoms that a true democracy guarantees. And while call out or boycott culture has given people a sense of victory over the last few years, cancel culture 
ultimately does more harm than good. I hope this was valuable. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nigerian American. Please subscribe, leave comments, and continue to share this podcast. You may also reach out to me on Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at LDTheDawn. That's at E-L-D-E-E-T-H-E-D-O-N. My name is LD. Thank you.